I realize this week as we're entering into our third message on the series we started two weeks ago on forgiveness, that um, I should probably start creating a list of the people that, that I need to forgive. Um, and so I've begun that. I'll share some of that with you. Um, Cindy Maris in seventh grade, for breaking up with me and going out with my Weasley cousin. Now let me just mark it, forgiven. I, I'll get to my Weasley cousin. He's more on the bottom of the list. Um, then there's the sadistic state trooper who used to make me march back and forth outside in the coal in front of the chow hut while everyone else was eating because he thought that I didn't have any rhythm in my marching. Obviously, he was sadistic. But nevertheless, um, we'll mark him off as forgiven. And then there's my church administrator, Joe, um, who's usually responsible for everything that goes wrong here, but somehow people keep getting confused thinking it's my fault, but we'll mark him off forgiven too. Um, <laughs> then there are those people in the church who think I preach too long. Forgiven. God will get them anyways. Um, you know, this forgiveness stuff is, is pretty easy, actually. Um, all you just have to do is say forgiven and mark them off your list. Uh, and, and the cool thing is, if you're a list person like me and you like to mark off things, that's an added bonus. Um, but what's even better is you can forgive them without having to really say it to them. You can forgive them without even having to see them. Um, you just mark their name off and you're 10 pounds lighter. No harm, no foul. You just get it over with all at once. But I don't know. There's something in, in doing that with my list. It, um, it doesn't feel any difference. When I mark them off as forgiven, it, I don't seem to feel any different about them. The truth is, it actually seems harder because whenever I think of them or whatever I think about what they did to me, I have to keep reminding myself, nope, nope, you forgave them, you forgave them. Even though it doesn't feel it. There's something wrong. And maybe you've encountered it yourself. You've marked off your list of people that you've forgiven. But there's something missing. Well, the truth is, there is something missing. There's a whole lot wrong with it. Because what we've done is we've reduced forgiveness to just checking off a list so we feel good. The problem is that we've got this whole forgiveness thing upside down. In our effort to try to do what Jesus has called us to do, we're doing it the wrong way. We've got the thing tipped upside down. And instead of doing it right, instead of pleasing God, 
we're actually becoming an obstruction to what God wants. This morning, we're going to look at forgiveness and beginning to unpeel the onion of what it means to engage in forgiveness because there are parts of it in today's church I think we have forgotten about. We have glossed over. We have listened to the wrong voices instead of looking at the voice of Jesus in scripture and looking at God's revelation to us. And so this morning, we're going to look at forgiveness through a different lens to get it right. Um, Before we jump into the passage we're going to be looking at this morning in Luke chapter 17, there's a principle that I want you to keep before you as we do this because it is the defining uh, principle when it comes to understanding forgiveness. And I can even go on and saying it's the defining principle when it comes to Christianity. And the principle is simply this. You ready? This, you, you, you don't need a pen for this. It's very simple. It's not about you. Forgiveness is not about you. Now as you can look at uh, our slide, uh, we've uh, magnified this uh, a number of times because When it comes to forgiveness, we have a hard time with the math. You see, every theological and spiritual misinterpretation and misapplication comes because we look at it from the bottom up. In other words, we interpret scripture based upon what we think is right, based upon what we think is fair, based upon, particularly in today's culture, how we feel about its justice. And then when we get done interpreting it, uh, we send it up the flagpole to heaven and we consider it blessed by God and, and that's how we function. The problem is we've forgotten something very, very vital. That unless we interpret God's word plainly as the way that it is given to us, and unless we particularly interpret it through the will of God and the glory of God, we'll never really get anything right. It's when we interpret God's will for us through his glory, it's then that we begin to understand and it's then that we begin to really see the power of his love for us and the power of his love in us towards others. This morning, as we look at Luke chapter 17, I want you to remember that the starting off place in all of Christian theology, and particularly as we look at this subject of forgiveness, the starting place is, it's not about you. It's not about me. It is about the glory of God revealed in his will. And through that, we experience his love. And so we're going to begin by looking at a scripture. Luke chapter 17. Uh, This is a very, very powerful scripture that provides one of those pieces of forgiveness that gets lost and 
causes us to become lost when it comes to forgiving others. So let's begin by looking at the passage. Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. And as we look at this verse, one of the things that we see is when it comes to God, sin is a big deal. Look what we read. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Jesus was saying this, that when it comes to sin, sin is a big deal to God. In fact, let's just look at verse one. Uh, He says, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. He is saying, woe to anyone who doesn't think that sin is a big deal and engages in it. Because in doing so, they attack uh, the character and the holiness of God. In doing so, they cause others to stumble and to become confused about God's nature and person and will, about God's plan for humanity. He says, woe to those through whom it comes, it would be better that a millstone be tied around their necks and thrown into a lake. It doesn't sound like Jesus was somebody who would just blow off sin like it didn't matter. It doesn't sound like Jesus viewed sin as something that you could just ignore and say, you're forgiven, you're checked off the list, don't worry about it. Just the opposite. When we look at this verse, first thing we see is that sin's a big deal. But here's the second thing that we see, and I don't want you to miss. It's the fact that repentance is a big deal. Jesus says in verse three, so watch yourselves. This is the warning Jesus gives. Watch yourself when it comes to sin. Pay attention to what you do because It matters. And then he goes on and says this. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they sin against you, rebuke them. Now, uh, the key word is that word, if. Um, It's a subordinate conjunction. It means that everything pivots on this. If your brother or sister sins against you, then you do what? Well, if they do that, then you rebuke them. Now, rebuke sounds harsh. What it means is correct. You go to them and you correct it. Why? Because it matters. If a brother or sister sins against us, we correct them not because we want to feel good about it. That would be narcissistic. We correct them because it's an attack on the holiness of God and it separates them from the fellowship of God. It separates them from the will of God. Jesus wants people reconciled to him and to each other. But it doesn't happen by checking their name off a list. It happens by confronting so that repentance can come. He says... 
if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if, there's that word again, if they repent, forgive them. Now, if we got rid of the word if, if we took away the conjunction that tied things together, you would just have Jesus saying, rebuke them and forgive them. But he doesn't. He says, if they sin against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Verse four, even if they sin against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. You must forgive them. Forgiveness is based on repentance. You can't have forgiveness without repentance. If I sin against you and you decide, well, I don't want the conflict of going to him. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to make things uncomfortable. I forgive them. Yeah, but that's all about you. That's about avoiding conflict. That's about you caring about yourself to forgive and push it aside. But what about me? What about the fact that I've sinned against you, but more importantly, I've sinned against God. And I'm unreconciled because I might not even see it. I might minimize it. Or I might be in rebellion and need someone to help me see it. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if your brother and sister sins against you, rebuke them. Second, if, if they repent, forgive them. But if they don't repent, you can't forgive. Because you have that word if. If they repent, forgive them. So what if they don't repent, then you can't forgive. The two go together. It's interesting. There is what what I call a majority voice in the church that has kind of laid a fog in this. There's an old saying that when there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. And a lot of pastors have allowed a mist to come into their theology, into their interpretation of scripture. And it's come out of a pop psychology uh, in our culture that has invaded the church. It's a theology that says, you don't need repentance for forgiveness. You only need it for reconciliation. It says, yeah, if they don't repent, then you can't reconcile with them, but you can forgive them. Now, it's based on Matthew 18, part of Matthew 18, not all of it. It's based on uh, this story that Jesus tells uh, about this man um, who has a great debt and is forgiven uh, by the king. But then he goes off and he has a servant who has a large debt, but he doesn't forgive. In fact, he, he assaults this man, he threatens him. And then the king finds out and the king punishes him. And then we're told by Jesus that If you don't forgive others, your heavenly father won't forgive you. And so this majority of voice would say, well, see, 
Jesus wants you to forgive, even if they can't repay the debt. But repentance isn't about repaying a debt. Repentance is about a sincerity of heart, of acknowledging sin. Um, But this majority voice would simply say that repentance is beneficial for sin, but it's it's not essential. Uh, The argument is that only God can ask for repentance because we see it all through scripture. You can't deny it. Jesus told people to repent, to repent and be baptized, to repent and believe. The message of repentance was clear that without repentance, there was no salvation. And yet there are those who would say, well, that's not really true because when Jesus was on the cross, he said, to those who crucified them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they were doing. But Jesus wasn't giving them blanket forgiveness. Jesus was giving to them the offer of forgiveness. He wasn't saying, oh, you're forgiven. Even, even if you're not sorry, you're forgiven. Because Jesus could have easily just said, nothing offered them no opportunity. But what he offered them was an opportunity. In fact, when we see Jesus on the cross, there are two thieves, one on one side and one on the other. One says to Jesus, remember me when you go to your kingdom. He acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ. He even says that that you don't belong up here with us. You're a righteous person. The other thief just mocks Jesus and belittles both of them. And Jesus says to the man who acknowledges him as a forgiver of sins that he will see him in paradise. No, Jesus took repentance very seriously. And he took forgiveness very seriously. And even when he's on the cross, he offered it to those who even crucified him. Matthew 18, let's get back to that for a second. That story that Jesus told and that recommendation, excuse me, not recommendation, declaration that you must forgive or your heavenly father won't forgive you. We see just above that when Jesus talks about church discipline, he says if someone sins against you, go to them. If they refuse to hear you, then bring someone from the church. And if they still refuse to acknowledge it, then bring them before the church. And if they still refuse to repent, then you excommunicate them from the church. Why? To be mean? No. To get them to see what they've done. To feel what it's like to be on the outside of the fellowship of God's people and of God. Because repentance is about God. It is about upholding God's holiness, which is part of his glory, which is part of his love. Where there's no repentance, there can't be forgiveness. Listen to what Paul has to say. Um, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 14, Paul talks about Alexander, uh, the metal worker. Listen to what he says. He said, Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. He says this, the Lord will repay him for what he has done. And you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposes our message. Now Paul wasn't saying, hey, 
I forgive you, check you off the list. Paul knew there was no repentance in this man. In fact, just the opposite. He hated the message of forgiveness. He hated the God of Paul. And so Paul warns the other believers, be careful of this man, stay away from him. He's deadly. And one day God will deal with him because of his hatred of the message. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says this about Hermeneus and Alexander who have sinned and blasphemed. Paul says, turn them over to, be, to Satan to be taught not to sin. Paul's hope was that in pushing them to acknowledge their sin, they would acknowledge it and come back into fellowship with God. That they would no longer blaspheme. And when we look at 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul chastises the Corinthians because they have a man in their fellowship who has been having sexual relations with his stepmother. And yet, they ignored it. They didn't want the conflict. And Paul says to them, what are you doing? You have to expel this person out of your fellowship. You can't act like this is what God is all about. That God doesn't care about sin. And then in 2 Corinthians, he has to write him again and say to them, okay, you've expelled him and he's repented, but you haven't let him back in. Do you see the theme of this? God wants repentance so that we don't keep going down the wrong road, that we don't get further away from him, so that we don't mess up what salvation really means. It matters. And I can go through scripture after scripture where repentance is the theme of forgiveness. You see, the problem with the majority voice on forgiveness is it sounds good. It sounds loving. But it's really narcissistic. Because it's based on the premise of me feeling better. The idea that if I forgive you, I don't have to carry that weight around anymore. I don't have to be keeping track of those who hurt me. But do you see what's going on? It's all about me. And as we said before, it's not about me. It's about God and his glory. It's about me caring about somebody else. You know, what is love? Love is putting the interest of others ahead of your own. It doesn't sound like what Jesus said, uh, this idea of uh, me not caring about others and where there are places when Jesus says, love your enemies. Well, what's the loving thing to do? It's to press in, to bear with them, to not write them off with a cheap forgiveness, but to go and to pursue them out of love for them, that they would be one with God again. Because even when people sin against me, the universal victim is God. Because his holiness and his justice have been victimized. And yet even in the God, that God through repentance offers mer mercy again. Um, it is not benevolent. We have this idea that if we can just give cheap forgiveness, that we can move forward with our lives, but we won't. 
we'll always know deep down inside there's something wrong here. See, we like cheap forgiveness because we like wrapping everything up. We like closure on everything. They sinned, I forgave them, we're all good. But you want to know what? That's not life. Sometimes there isn't closure. Sometimes we have to struggle even to the day we die of broken relationships. Not because God wants us to agonize over past hurt. God wants us to agonize over the person who hurt us and their situation. Think about this for a moment. Imagine if I slapped you in the face um, and you said to me, I forgive you. And I said to you, I don't really care. And you said, no, no, I, I really forgive you. And I say to you, I really don't care. In fact, I'm going to slap you again. And then I slap you again and you say, I forgive you. <laughs> and then I say, you don't understand. I really don't care whether you forgive me or not. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Is that what forgiveness is about? That God doesn't really care the fact that I don't care? That I just get this blanket pass on his holiness and his righteousness on the death of Christ on the cross for what he did for me? No, he cares. And you probably wouldn't like it either. I want you to think about it for a minute. What would you rather be in life? A mugger or the person who's been mugged? I know it sounds crazy, but I'd rather be the person who's been mugged. Because I can heal from that. I, I can move on from that. The mugger's got to stay with that. Unless he changes, unless he repents. He's still a mugger. Nothing's changed. What would you rather be? The spouse who has cheated or the spouse who has been cheated upon? Yeah, it hurts to be betrayed. But you can heal from that. But the spouse who does the cheating, they got to carry that. And even in repentance, they still have to struggle with what they did. Our job is not to look for a pound of flesh. We don't rebuke for repentance so we feel better. We do it out of love for them, even though they hurt us because Jesus said, love your enemies. Repentance matters. Having a list that I just check off saying, forgiven, forgiven, it's cheap grace. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer during World War II warned us against that. So uh, what exactly we, do we do? What do we do with people who have hurt us and we feel the pain of it? We pursue them. But what do we do in the meantime? What do we do with the fact that we might not be able to just pursue all the time? Uh, what do we do with our sense of brokenness if we can't forgive? Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 12. 
because in these words, he gives us great help uh, to what I believe is a powerful tool that God gives for us as we wait for others in their repentance. Paul says, if, there's that word again, if it is possible. And what does that mean if it's possible? Well, (laughs) we know in Christ Jesus, everything's possible. We know in Christ Jesus, when we look at the word possibility, we know that there's nothing that's impossible with God. So Paul says, if it's possible, which puts us on notice that most likely it is possible. He says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you. Notice Paul isn't saying as far as it depends on someone who's hurt you. He says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So he's saying, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So he goes on and says, rule one, you never take revenge. You live at peace. If it's possible, live at peace with everyone. Surrender it to me. And then he says this. On the contrary, on the contrary of what? On the contrary of, well, we don't take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What does it mean burning coals on his head by being nice to him? Uh, is that kind of a sneaky way of getting back at him? No, it, it's to bring conviction to them. That love can melt the hardest of hearts. And so he says, on the contrary, don't take revenge. Love them, press into them, care for them. Because it will drive them to a place of repentance and it dr- drive them to a place of full fellowship with God and full fellowship with you. You see, I can go through my list and check off all these people and just say, yep, forgiven, forgiven. It won't change anything and it really won't change the way I feel. I've had people who've hurt me and I've had people come back to me And have said to me, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. It wasn't fair to you. The joy I felt in that wasn't in being right. The joy I felt in that was that they had become right in their own minds with God. That the confusion and insanity of sin had been taken away from them because in their words I mean they couldn't necessarily fix the damage they did if they ripped me off that wasn't going to repay me what repaid me was knowing that they're right before God and that's all I care about what they did it almost vanished 
because things were truly right. They were right with God. And when they're right with God, they're reconciled with me. So as we go through this series, I want you to understand something. Forgiveness is important. But forgiveness is also reliant on repentance. And it's also reliant on your repentance. Maybe this is a good time for us not to put together a list of the people we're going to forgive. Maybe it's a good time for us to put together a list of the people that we need to go to and repent. Maybe it's time that we stop blame shifting. Maybe it's time that we stop making excuses. Maybe it's time that we free ourselves by owning what we need to own and being set free and being made right. God bless you this week. Stay safe. And remember that God is with you always in Christ Jesus. Amen.